Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is someone who's very much into slow fashion, quality, and uh, the good life, I think you could say. Sounds fair. Would you like to introduce yourself, Sam? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hello, I'm Sam. Um, I make content online about slow fashion, um, typically from an angle of buying less and buying better. Uh, but that is a fairly recent thing, actually, and my uh, the rest of my life exists in wine and cheese and coffee and food. Hence the good life, I suspect. Just nice things, simple things done well. You see... You're making content online about buying less. Mm. Is that a sustainable content um, source? I think it's it's difficult because I think everybody's cottoning on to the fact that buying a lot less or not buying new things is a really good way to increase your sustainability and it's better for the planet. But I do also believe that we all will always need new things and... There's an amazing industry out there for textiles and garments, as well as every other industry that has jobs and it has people it needs to support. And I just want to see if we can do that in a way that's a bit better than the current system that we have, uh, which is the fast fashion system. Mm, You kind of dove straight in at the deep end there, um, sort of opening up the scope to the entire system (laughs) that is around clothes, the supply chains, the economies all employees it's huge and very complicated um so i'm trying to take a very particular little niche on it which is it's i've I've been thinking about this a bit and it's like i'm not a particularly what's the word antagonistic person i'm not confrontational so to describe myself as anti-fast fashion doesn't sit with me and i'd rather spend my effort shouting about and sharing small independent makers uh like handcrafted things that are made by people rather than i mean everything's made by people but it's <laughs> it's where you can check trace that and know that the people you're buying from are there and benefiting from it mm, i can see where you're coming from there um it's, there is something about buying something made by someone you can actually say hi to or put a name to a face Absolutely. Or vice versa, versus something that comes by the contained load from somewhere very, very far away. Yeah, it's two very different worlds, and there's a necessity for things by the container load, absolutely. Um, so again, it's kind of this very particular lifestyle. If you are able to and you want to do that, then we can make it better for everyone else as well. There used to be a saying that by, well, by once... Now, this has in recent times sort of become uh, the the buy well, buy less, which strikes me as a slightly sort of more marketing angle to it. The sort of buying once is lost. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always heard it from my grandparents and parents as buy cheap, buy twice. I mean, it's the exact same saying, but those are the words I had in my head for that. And it's it's so difficult because every time you approach something, there's always another angle which is completely legitimate. So it's, I think it's actually a Terry Pratchett, complete, cannot remember which book or anything, but talking about how someone can afford a good pair of boots, so they spend 10 times as much as the other person, but they need to buy boots 20 times less. 
That's the Sam, Sam Vines boot theory. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> um, the boot theory. And it it is applicable because it's, it's fair to say like, oh, if you can buy better boots, buy better boots. But you've also got to think about the fact that fast fashion is a necessity for people who can't afford that. Um, so buying cheap isn't a something that everybody can avoid um and i think cheap's an interesting word i i'm i'm st- I, i've avoided using it for exactly that reason i don't want to alienate people who can't afford more expensive clothes but i think when we talk about cheap clothes we need to be we're talking about the cheapness of the manufacturers or the brands who aren't even manufacturers these days they're all marketing companies that outsource manufacturing and it's it's their cheapness that we need to be calling out and not the end cost of the garment um or not the the price that the consumer pays as such several several points in what you say there because um you have the point about buying low cost garments now you have people who legitimately can't afford to pay more for a garment Mm. than the low cost garment costs and then you have the people who buy low cost garments because they can buy lots and lots of them for the money they have which is kind of two opposing points Uh, yeah absolutely um, I think most recently highlighted by uh, was it Boohoo on Black Friday selling dresses and things for four p or yeah, clearly completely unconnected to yeah. the actual cost of marketing yeah. uh, making them. Yeah, and marketing. <laughs> There's a cost in there as well, and it's if you can sell a dress for four p and you can put it on a website and list it and have someone pack and send it and pick it as well as the entire chain before it even gets to that point, then it really does, like, get to me. <laughs> I, I think it was a stunt to get uh, yeah. publicity. Really bad publicity, mind you, mm-hmm. but they were getting publicity. True. Because you can't make anything for 4p. You can't make anything for a pound. Um, no. Not when you're making it far away and it has to be transported and... Someone has to be paid at least mm-hmm. something to make it and and all that. Now, the other point you made there regarding cost was... Cheap clothes isn't... When I, or when I talk about don't buy cheap clothes, it's not don't buy low-cost clothes. It's don't buy clothes that are made cheaply with corners cut and people not looked after properly. Like, that is where cheap sits for me. Um... And I think making making it clear how you feel about words can help to make your message a bit clearer for people as well, rather than just a like demonising people who can't afford pure wool garments, and it's not what it's about. So it does get a bit touchy, doesn't it? Mm-hmm, because, absolutely. Um, a lot of the people who will be fronting the sort of slow fashion buy better stuff will probably be people who have. A decent wallet and can actually say oh yeah i'm going to buy less now i'm going to buy just really good stuff yeah which costs several hundred pounds for a pair of trousers absolutely so. there's there's an enormous amount of privilege in being able to get into that cycle um and then it is i mean it's the boots theory again it's that cycle of i've been able to afford something better so now i actually don't need as much um therefore i'm better off <laughs> Do you think there's a, a market building up for people who have been, and I say this loosely, taken in by this idea of buying better stuff, buying local, being sustainable? Absolutely. I think we, the, 
the one that jumped out to me actually was uh, Ventile popped up in conversation the other day, uh, <laughs> and I uh, I couldn't help but just go on the website to see what they were talking about at the minute, and the whole website is the words slow fashion are there. Um, everything is there about it's the it's a super sustainable fabric. It's the best fabric for slow fashion, and it is in in any context people are just co-opting this for marketing as they always do and we've seen we've seen this with greenwashing and the sustainability credit credentials 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 yeah um of of the big brands and they're saying oh you know we've got recycled bottles in our new rugs um which I read an astonishing fact the other day that a lot of places now are just buying brand new bottles and recycling them into plastic rugs or <laughs> They're not reclaimed from after a first use. They are first use, brand new, bought, and then recycled into garments, just so a brand can market it as such. And if I wasn't already losing faith in humanity, here we go. <laughs> well, I'm glad we got there so quickly. I, I help. I like helping people lose their faith. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, I don't know why you were looking at Ventile, but uh, I know the Ventile marketing strategy has been changed quite a bit over the years. It's it, it's not something I've followed, uh, their marketing strategy. It's a material I'm aware of its properties, and that's, that's as far as it goes. And th- this is what really, this is what really, I think, got to me in the early days of my like me sort of developing my own style, I guess, or like getting into fashion. Um, some people say they're not into fashion, but everybody wears clothes, therefore, by default, you're into fashion. But I think I, as I was getting into it, I was so interested in where things were from um, and who was making them that it was kind of, it was a lot easier to look for things that were made in England. But then you very soon discover that that doesn't necessarily mean it was made in England. If you can stitch it together in England and have the rest of it made abroad, then you can still stick that label on. The legal definition mm. uh, behind the label is uh, has changed over time and can be uh, misused. Mm. Um, yeah, especially shoes, where you can basically make all the bits abroad and then just really just put them, glue them together in the UK. Yeah. Uh, I remember a few years ago I was looking at um, Rolls Royces. They're made outside Goodwood, uh, the Goodwood Estate in uh, Surrey, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, the factory is 75% staffed by Germans, I believe, and all the parts for the cars come in crates from Germany. So they're just basically assembled in the UK. <laughs> it's, yeah, and I think what I what I started looking for was more information um and i found a few brands and since then i've found a lot more that genuinely love shouting about where their fabrics are from um and the fact that they use particular weavers in particular parts um and that doesn't have to be in england they can be really enthusiastic about a portuguese mill or an italian mill or a chinese mill but it's the enthusiasm and the transparency and knowledge and as we mentioned about buying from somebody who you know who's made it, it, those types of people want to know that as well. So it's like if you're buying a garment from somebody who cares about where the cloth is from, 
then it's like that better chain, shorter, better, easier to follow chain. Do you, do you think we genuinely want to know who made things, or is it just a sort of box to be ticked that uh, oh yeah we sort of know who where it came from, who wove it or whatever? Uh, I think there's two there's two sides. There's people like me who genuinely are interested and really really want to know, and that probably comes from the coffee side of things for me where suddenly this there's this third wave coffee thing i mean i'm not suddenly over the course of the last 20 years but it's suddenly we know farmers names and we know what initiatives they have on their farm and whether they're building schools for their workers and it's like this is great information rather than just my coffee's from brazil and it's and i i sort of took the same approach to that with clothes but then on the other side of it with the tick box is it can still be a really good tick box if you if a brand is open about where things are from then you can use that as a tick box for traceability and making a considered and intentional purchase i just sort of fear that it might be just another sort of hipster affectation i don't know if you remember the the sketch show on British TV where the, they did this I saw saw you coming shop where the shop owner is a real crook and is he gets the dumb um, customer after the dumb customer coming in and he's just blathering about the stuff there. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> I, I, know, I know as blokes we tend to go deep on hobbies. Yeah, I don't I w- think women do it in the same way. Uh, I wouldn't be able to comment. I don't from that perspective, but I do know what you mean. <laughs> so like, hanging out on forums, googling late into the night, finding all those nerdy little details, deciding that oh, the absolute best socks in the world are made in Lancashire. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, uh, no, I know what you mean, and I, I, I'm definitely guilty. Having to have the absolute best that. of everything. Yeah, and it, it that's where it stemmed for me was having having the best um, was a big part of it. And how do you go about finding the best? Uh, I think it's diligence and research um, and conversations. It, it's you can't you can't walk into a high street store and start chatting to them about the bits that you're interested in because the the floor staff certainly won't know what the mill's like and if you get a manager out then they're not going to have a clue and it's like you there's no access to the people who actually care within that chain whereas you know going into a small workshop that where somebody makes a small amount of things even if they're outsourcing to other factories if they have that presence and they are essentially the person is the brand then it's a much more interesting experience for me to buy something like that and to find that information and to make an easier decision of whether it's worth the money and better or not Hmm. i guess a a smaller workshop or smaller brand will have more directly been involved in sourcing the fabrics made more conscious decisions and so forth absolutely whereas the huge brands would just order 20 million meters of uh, whatever yeah and it, and there's that many middlemen in the way that the brand actually don't know where the fabric's coming from in the end and in a lot of cases do you find that 
when you're buying stuff, are you looking for functionality, traceability, uh, your enjoyment or appreciation of a garment? What is it that sort of grabs you? Yes. All of the above. It's... <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> You've already mentioned ticking boxes, and it, I, I do have a... I do have a checklist for any sort of new purchase and and it, I'm not afraid of buying new um, and I'm not, I think a lot of people in the this slow fashion world, which is a, a phrase that I could talk about for a long time and disagree with and agree with, but in the slow fashion sort of community, it's not buying new things is the, is the sort of biggest goal. And I'm not sure I 100% agree with that because as we already mentioned there's sustainability isn't just about impact on the planet it's also economic and human related like people need jobs and people need work and people need clothes so the traceability and the authenticity of the garment and that knowledge about where it was made is really important which hopefully should lead to better quality um, and longevity but you know, the aesthetic is as equally important whether or not I am going to absolutely love this garment because when I buy something, I do want to, I want it to last. I don't want to just get something and then think, oh, I'm bored of that now, but I'll sell it secondhand so it's sustainable. It's fine. So it's more, it's more about having things that last for me. Longevity is a word I use a lot. Mm. I think that might be part of the problem with, with the expression slow fashion because it mm -hmm. includes the word fashion which by its very definition is change and because i think really if you want to have clothes keep them for a long time and not keep buying stuff you really have to stop caring so much about clothes absolutely um but also it's more caring for clothes <laughs> as well as caring less about them caring less about the style and the trends and more about the actual care of the garment and looking after things and repairing things seems to be a forgotten skill, um, which I was never taught how to turn a sewing machine on in school, and that bothers me. Well, that's dead easy. <laughs> well, I, know, I know during uh, during the pandemic, a lot of people have taken up sewing, so much so that our local sewing shop had waiting lists for sewing machines. Wow. Um, but it is actually very easy to get started sewing and repairing mm -hmm. stuff uh but uh every new topic we we sort of touch upon now can easily branch off yeah new topics yeah i think that's that's the thing it's there's there's so much to talk about and unpack with it so so the the concept of caring uh, about or caring for your clothes is very interesting because mm -hmm. uh, for many many years as a as a father of many kids uh, i basically didn't care too much about what I wore as long as I was wearing something but then mm -hmm. you sort of come to the point where you start caring very much about exactly what you are wearing uh, which becomes unhealthy but then mm -hmm. buying good stuff and taking care of them say polishing your shoes waxing your jacket repairing stuff that goes breaks is very sensible but I think there's a balance to be had there between buying good stuff taking care of it and not worrying too much because um, there is that thing about going around looking at stuff. Are you looking at stuff you need or stuff you want, or are you just wanting to buy something? Yeah, um, and I I always think I have two conflicting views in my head about anything, and 
stuff you need and stuff you want are very different, but they can both equally end up being very, very good buys, very positive buys for your wardrobe. If you do absolutely love something, then I don't think you shouldn't not buy it just because you're you feel guilty about buying new things. Like if you see it and you think that is actually something that I am going to get a lot of wear out and it's going to last for a long, long time, then that could be considered an impulse purchase or it could be considered a considered purchase. Or inspired purchase. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> mm. So, um, yep, an inspired purchase. Yeah. My wife keeps telling me that I, I keep buying the same stuff. Because I buy what I like, and I know I like, say, blue shirts. Yeah. So how many blue shirts do you need? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the other end of it. Um, it's You might only need one blue shirt, but then if you wear it to death within a month, what's the point? You'd be better having two mm. and rotating them. That's a much more sensible way to do it. Yeah. There's also that thing about knowing that you'll get a lot of use out of something. Now, I, I never really sort of have any sort of feeling about that when I'm looking at something. But my mm -hmm. daughter will say, uh, no, don't buy that. I only wear it three times. And How on earth do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's impressive. Um, I think that is, and that is the way that we should think as consumers when we look at things. Like, I'm not saying you are wrong or that your daughter is right, but actually thinking about how much you're going to wear it should be a really valuable metric in deciding whether or not it's a good buy. It is strange, though, having sort of making those considered thoughts whilst looking at something, because it, it is a fact of life that we do like buying stuff. Absolutely. I do. I, I don't like going around shops shopping, but I do like getting new stuff. Uh, and then having to sort of think, now, is this something I'll use? I don't know. That's a, that's a tough one. But it would save me an awful lot of money if I did. True. Um, I think, I mean, shopping's been a weird one for the last year. Because uh, I think I did, I don't like buying things on the internet, especially clothes. Um, I very much like going to buy things from people who enjoy selling those things. Whether that's at a independent clothes store with multiple retailers or at a a store that sells their own manufacturing it just it's always been a much more interesting way to shop for me because it isn't just shopping it's also like there's the social side of it i have mentioned a few times before that um, online shopping is really quite dangerous one mm -hmm. thing is that you don't get to try anything on so you don't really know what it's going to be like until it's arrived uh, the other is that it's so much easier to spend money when you're just tapping in your card details or just hitting pay now with PayPal mm -hmm. rather than actually seeing it on the cash register yeah. <laughs> and having to sort of yeah, uh, really feel it. But the, the, this is, again, it's that thing of having something physical in one hand and seeing the value of what your money goes to. And it's like you're you're right. The, the the screen creates a a barrier between that like direct value comparison. Like you see some numbers and you see other numbers of what you're getting: one times, two times, three times, four times this. And like your brain thinks, "Yay, good value!" 
Whereas actually it's a lot harder to, there's, there's a lot more to value than just price as everybody knows. Of course, the, the other way that online really tricks us is the, the large uh, online places that offer free shipping and free returns. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think I learned from a very young age that nothing is free. Um, so you, you're paying for the shipping in the price of the clothes anyway. Um, and again, there's two ways to look at that. You can look at a small boutique maker that sells expensive clothes and the fact that shipping is built into the price of the garment is just an absolute given in some cases. Sometimes it's not and they charge shipping extra, but a lot of places do consider that, whereas there's that much margin in the garments for fast fashion that they will do the free shipping because it is a another technique to get you to hit buy. Everybody's seen the £10 plus £2 shipping, don't want it. £12 plus free shipping, ooh, bargain. It, it's, a, it's a very strange psychological thing. But the, the returns, the free return side is, is even worse. Um, the return systems in place in the sort of fast fashion industry are not up to scratch. They are not where they should be. Um, most of what gets returned it ends up in landfill which or burnt because they don't separate out what is it's not like going back to a shop and saying this isn't quite right for me and they give it a quick steam and put another tag on and then put it back on the rail it goes into a massive pile of returns nobody is paid or employed to sort through that to find the garments that are worth reselling and to find the ones that were damaged they don't know what was the wrong size or what was damaged even though you've probably ticked a box or filled it in it's not dealt with that way so it's either resold on to bulk resellers um shipped all the way around the world a few times before ending up in landfill or just sent straight to landfill um and i think that is i've been reading quite a bit about this recently and i think the the returns thing is something that really needs to be dealt with and looked at because as consumers we're we don't know like we see free returns we assume that it goes back on a shelf whether that's virtual or not mm. it is quite telling for the business model that they can bin stuff rather than resell it yeah. that it has so little worth yeah it's, i think it's, uh, I think it's cheaper to bin it than it is to pay someone to sort it yeah i think this is uh this is a bit different from various places though um because i see a place my wife likes to order stuff from. I mean, they have this down to a science. Uh, so you can order enough garments to try on and then return it. And it's so slick that normally, because we live in Norway, anything that crosses the border has to be paid duty, customs, VAT, etc. Mm -hmm. And returning something, say, to the UK is an absolute nightmare because you're going to lose most of what you've paid in customs and so forth in addition to having to pay a whopping great return postage but these international giants i mean they just slip through customs you can send stuff back and it's all totally transparent so i mean it's scientific it's uh it's incredible how they do it and yeah. i think they also do put things back into stock because you can sort of tell that a few is days later yeah that, that something is has that is absolutely not a a given that that is how it all works but that is how a lot of it works um and it is a, a big part of it that i don't think people pick up on um but that like i'd love to see it, it more clear where resold or returned items actually go um 
because it's just, again it's you mentioned the word transparency but that is one of the biggest barriers to understanding how these businesses work i think what they think of as transparency is more what we'd consider to be sort of magic tricks yeah. it's uh, they're illusionists mm-hmm. so when you say to h&m that um, oh but you're greenwashing you're fast fashion you're not sustainable they'll sort of conjure up some trickery and say that oh yeah we are and you don't really know but you don't necessarily no. believe them <laughs> no <laughs> and that's that is that is it it's the i was reading earlier today as well about the uh what's it called the bait and switch in their terms uh where they say like their ecological or sustainable credentials but it's always this little mention of we expect our suppliers and manufacturers to so it's H&M are suddenly saying, hands up, not it's not us, but we expect our suppliers and manufacturers to do this. If they're not doing it, we're not going to hold them to account. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that. And uh, also a lot of, I mean, you have to read these things carefully because some of the time they'll be saying that uh, we intend to become sustainable. Mm-hmm. We plan Within to. so and so many years. Or... Um, We'd love to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, H&M have this wonderful machine they've been um, publicizing called the Loop. Right. Uh, there's one of them made, and you can bring a garment in, you can put it in this machine, and then select what you'd like to turn it into. So far, so good. Because you can bring in a T-shirt, say, and you'd like a bikini top. And it it takes a few hours for it to make this. But something comes out the other end, and they're making a big hoopla around it. And it does sound brilliant, because it's reclaiming the fibres, mm-hmm. and it's weaving them and reconstituting them and so forth. They don't say so much about that. It also uses supplemental fibres. So it's not just your T-shirt. It's sort of, you don't really know how much yeah, of it. Yeah. And there's only one of them. Yeah. So is this going to save the world? Well, H&M say it's sort of hinting at what they can do, but... I mean, I wonder. It's not really going to, is it? I wonder whether they could have spent that money employing people to turn t-shirts into bras, or what? <laughs> I mean, fiber reclamation is. There's a lot of research being done on it now. Yeah, uh, but it is tricky because a lot of the fibers that they are trying to reclaim are mixed uh, synthetics. Yeah, and say the, and bl- so forth. the blended fabrics are the tricky ones. And really poor quality at that. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of uh, what needs to be done there is to make better clothes to start with. Yeah. Which might be recyclable or usable for longer. It's uh, going down the wrong way if we're trying to reclaim and salvage all the crummy crap that has been made. Yeah. But um, funny you mention H&M because I got the... uh, I subscribe to a lot of newsletters just because I'm always interested to see what people are marketing. And I got the H&M newsletter through today where they're screaming with joy about new blended fabrics for their new denim range. And and it's like jeans, but with a brand new fabric that's a blend of, can't remember what, but don't want to know. And it's like, it's they say, they say, like with one hand, they're saying, look at this loop machine that reclaims fabrics. And then... They're sending out newsletters saying, here's some new blended fabrics that we've just created that the world didn't need. Hmm. I saw some numbers recently of uh, how much of the microplastics problem is down to just genes mm. and the elastane, the content in genes. And it was uh, 
horrible, like most of these statistics are. Yeah, really eye-opening. And also, uh, as sort of proper blokes, of course, we don't use stretchy, skinny jeans at all, so we can... <laughs> well, I have I have actually only just ordered my first ever pair of jeans. Oh, good lord. <laughs> what, what? <laughs> Tell um... me all about it. <laughs> so, I, um, I mean... Obviously, when I was a teenager, I had jeans, but they're they're not what you and I would call jeans. I reckon um, they were what we're talking about. They were fast fashion jeans, and I didn't really understand the makeup of the material or anything. But since in the last ten years, since I have been giving a shit about what I wear, I haven't owned a pair of jeans. Um, but I've just yeah, I've just ordered some Dawson denim. Uh, well, that's a good choice. Good choice. Yeah. They're supposed to be coming on the podcast soon as well. Excellent. Um, I've had one of their aprons for about eight years now in the coffee shop. Um, and it's still going really, really strong. And they're one of these workshops where you can actually nip down to uh, Brighton and uh, visit them. Yeah, yeah. So I was chatting to um, Kelly and saying, like, if it wasn't for the whole uh, COVID thing, I'd have probably popped down to <laughs> figure out exactly what I wanted. But we had some good chats and... Uh, We've decided what fit and what denim I've gone for. So we'll see when they arrive. Mm, but you missed out on the whole Japanese denim then. Although I suppose they so use Japanese the, denim fabric. They do use Japanese denim fabric, but this is... Uh, you touched on it earlier with the uh, going down a black hole of acquisition and interest and needing things. And I, I just know if I went into the world of Japanese denim... I'd I'd have never have come out of the other end with a with a purchase, never mind, or I'd have come out with far too much, and I'd have been obsessed with the next pair of jeans or whether I should get a weightier pair or a lighter pair. So I thought by putting this restriction on myself of I want a British maker to make them for me, then it kind of helped me narrow that decision down a bit. That does limit it a lot. Uh, there aren't that many makers of proper jeans in Britain. No, there aren't. And you're, and you're right about going down that uh, black hole of, uh, I was about to say despair, but of um, <laughs> can be increasingly joy. expensive and esoteric uh, acquisitions <laughs> yeah. uh, from dodgy um, or hard-to-understand auction sites in Japan well, and so forth. The yeah. hard-to-understand hard part, is I struggle with it in English. Like I feel like denim has its own, like its whole own language, and like I know cuts are cuts, and yes, they make sense, and then weights make sense to me. But when you see people talk about denim and or denim heads or denim nerds or whatever, like I, I just glaze over. <laughs> Slubby right hand twill, <laughs> rope died. <laughs> But it's but it's bonkers because these are the things I'm interested in. But I just I've, I've always found the world of denim scary. Well, I think sort of between us, uh, a lot of that is sort of made up to make it sound impressive. Mm. It doesn't make much difference. <laughs> Weight makes a difference, and slubbiness makes a difference. Yeah, and there are various colours of blue. Um, depending on how it's been dyed and so forth. But beyond that, it doesn't really make a difference. And no. certainly not to the wearer. No. no. They are trousers. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully long-wearing and hard-wearing trousers. We'll see. Yeah. It depends. Uh, I mean, just 
yeah, take care of them, repair them if they need it. Absolutely. And uh, well, I think the I, I do see the repairing is is one of the big reasons I decided to actually go for a pair of jeans because like I I put out a call on Instagram recently for people who were doing good mending or good repairs with the intention of putting together a little uh, collection or highlight for people to be able to find places to get things repaired well. And about 80% of the accounts or people that I got sent were specifically denim repairs. And mm. I guess that's because it's easier to repair in a way. There's a lot more There's a lot more denim out there to fix denim with. And denim is denim, like like you say. It's like you can patch denim with denim and it still looks good. Yeah, well, I think part of it is that people have paid a lot of money for the trousers and they might be willing to pay more to have them repaired. Hmm. But you do have you do have brands who include free repairs. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, for, the, for the lifetime of the jeans, I think. But uh, I don't know if I'd want to set up a business repairing jeans Mm. on a sort of daily basis um <laughs> but but some people have uh, yeah, more power to no, them absolutely although i don't think you'd ever Definitely. you'd ever get the uh the same repair twice although probably a lot of crotch blowouts but beyond that just just that expression <laughs> puts me a bit off <laughs> <laughs> and i was speaking to uh to someone who repairs denim in norway and they had had to put be firm about any jeans being sent in for repair had to be washed by the owner because you have these guys oh my crotch blew out after a year of wear I haven't washed them yet can you fix them uh, sorry sir no thanks <laughs> oh dear yeah I can see that but that's all part of the game I guess yeah um so new to new to denim now that is mm. interesting. So what sort of stuff have you been into before this? Uh, Where is the slowness of your fashion? I, I wear a lot of wool. I love wool, wool trousers, wool cardigans. Don't own any wool shirts, do I? Probably actually, I think I do. Uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, and linen is also one of my absolute favourite fabrics. Two selections, neither of which are known to be extremely comfortable. Well, linen becomes more comfortable over time, yeah, but it can th- be a bit tough to start with. I, I think linen's a very comfortable fabric. Um, it's breathable, at least. And uh, mm. for someone like me who runs hot a lot of the time, if it's double digits, I am in a t-shirt and shorts. It's, although I don't, I only own one pair of shorts. So. <laughs> There we go. Um, but yeah, like linen, I wear a lot of linen. Um, I do love wool. And I think wool, again, it's just because of, I know there's a lot of chemical treatments and things applied to it, which can be quite nasty. But in terms of British wool and British weaving and knitting and knitwear, it seems to be a bit more of a, there's a, there's a nice heritage there with a lot of things, I think. Mm. I get that, and I think the treatment of wool has been reeled in a lot in yeah. recent years. There's much less of it now. Mm-hmm. Um, the odd thing about wool is there's, there's so much of it is just thrown away because we produce a lot more wool than we actually manage to yeah. use up. Which, and again, this is, I think, like when we talk earlier about um, like fair wages and workers and things. You, you conjure up images of third world countries in sweatshops, but 
actually British farmers are struggling to get paid enough for a sheep fleece that it's not worth them shearing the sheep in some cases. It's like the cost of shearing isn't covered. And then mm. you see a, a you can see sweaters for British knitwear for hundreds of hundreds of pounds. And it's kind of where there's a disconnect somewhere. Mm. Well, that's the odd thing, isn't it? That you see some sweaters for hundreds and hundreds of pounds, but you can actually get lamb's wool or wool sweaters British made for, say, a hundred pounds. Yeah. Which is tremendous value. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that, but it's, it is the disconnect, even between a hundred pounds for a sweater and a farmer that can't afford to shear his sheep because he doesn't get paid enough for the wool. Like, I, I hold my hands up in disbelief. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard for a rational person to actually mm. understand the mechanics of an industry where that can happen. Um, I don't know, I'd suggest uh, going down the sort of unbearably hipster route of uh, having a farmer supply a brand so you have the transparent uh, sourcing mm -hmm. of, you could almost name the sheep behind yeah. the sweater. <laughs> Which I've seen a couple of places uh, veering towards. I know there's a... Uh... Is it John Sterner out your way? He's Sweden, isn't he? Uh, the old, the, what was the name? John Sterner. Uh, it's it's the old Stutterheim guy. Oh. So the guy who started the Stutterheim brand, he's I believe he split off to do this knitwear brand, John Sterner. Okay. And uh, you know they they actually put the the cheap tags from the fleece on the knitwear that you buy. <laughs> Sounds a bit weird, really. It does. It does when you put it like that. But they have, you know, he, he loves talking about his sheep and the uh, the women who knit for him and everything. So yeah. it's sort of like getting a photo of the pig when you're buying a pork chop. <laughs> a bit too far. Yeah. Didn't need yeah. it to be that transparent. No. Okay. So you like your knitwear. I what do. sort of brands of knitwear are you looking at? So I own. Four pieces of knitwear, even though I love it that much. I have this cardigan, uh, which is Universal Works, um, which is actually, I believe, a blend, which I was appalled to discover only uh, this week. I just assumed it was wool. I don't know where the tag's gone. Which is, you know, one of those big mistakes we can make is not actually looking at the ruddy labels. Um, anyway, the tag's in there somewhere. But uh, then uh, I absolutely love um, S.E.H. Kelly in London. Their knitwear is something else. Um, I have his, like, Geelong lambswool sweater, which is yay thick. Um, very thick. Uh, and then... Uh, I've looked at them myself, yeah. <laughs> they are lovely. They are absolutely... And, you know, like... But this is where we start getting into the investment piece territory um and you know like i have i've had this repaired i've had that repaired because you don't spend that sort of money on knitwear and then it get a hole in it and it go to landfill that's not how it should be at all um and then finally i have a couple of so i have a cashmere uh, sweater and a little merino vest from no not merino sorry lambswool vest from margaret howell Each of those pieces sounds like it moves from sort of mid-range to fairly expensive. Mm. Yeah, I think there's but a... They are worth it. They are well made. I think so. And it's kind of... it's it, 
we touched on the sort of the privilege and the approach and being able to do so earlier, but I have always had this approach that I would so much rather own one of something that is very, very nice than ten of something which is nice. Mm. And it's like, I think a very nice way to put it would be when, like, T-shirts or something which are... People know how much a T-shirt should cost in the real world and you can spend a lot more than that on a T-shirt and you can see some designers selling T-shirts for hundreds and hundreds of pounds which is bonkers because none of that money makes any sense anywhere. But, you know, a T-shirt in the sort of... 50 to 80 pound range as opposed to the 5 to 8 pound range there's a big difference there um, and I would so much rather own one 50 pound t-shirt than 10 5 pound t-shirts like, it is just that balance that is a, that's a tricky one that is a bit of a thought experiment so dear listener what would you spend or how many t-shirts would you have now i happen to know that the very very best t-shirt you can have costs 190 pounds okay and that is that is the absolute best fabric made by people in the uk who get paid a fair price and the company makes it has just a marginal profit mm-hmm. 190 pounds 190 that's the that's the best so yeah. anything above that they're taking, they're extracting your urine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anything below that is obviously subpar. Yeah, but I also think that there's t-shirts for less than £190, which can be very, very good intentional and conscious purchases. Oh, for sure. But uh, they're not the, the best. No, not the And of best. course, the one for £190 doesn't have any advertising logo on the which chest or is, anything like that either. Which is usually <laughs> one of my big checkboxes if I'm ever buying something. No visible logos. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's. I don't know if I could go so far as to say I don't like advertising brands, or whether it's just that it sort of detracts from it. I think yeah. that might be another hipster affectation. Oh, I don't wear any brands. I don't want to advertise for various brands or whatever. But um, yeah, I think I don't know. There's a part of that, but for me, it just it usually it just spoils what is a really nice garment. Because the, the garment mm. isn't designed with a logo on it. It's designed and then someone goes, oh, where should we put the logo? And mm. it, It's interesting, though, because I see a lot of teenagers wearing stuff that clearly they wouldn't have worn if it didn't have a massive logo over the back. Yeah, and teenagers need to express themselves and <laughs> they need to follow trends. Like, I think that's the way. And it's like what I'd hope is that maybe people can get younger and younger and start making more conscious purchases. Um, teen, I, I am not a father. I don't have kids. So I'm not particularly well-placed to talk about how children buy things. I can only speak about what I wanted to do as a teenager. And that was to make sure that people knew I was listening to metal music. Ah, oh, sordid dark past. Yeah, mm. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I did have Very, a few band had to, T-shirts. Had to have the big uh, Dark Throne logo, right? Aren't they Norwegian? <laughs> they are. I have a feeling they are Norwegian. Yeah, mm. they are Norwegian. Yes, Norwegian black metal. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I admit I had a few band T-shirts in my uh, uh, younger years. Uh, I do still have a few lying in a box somewhere. But uh, the only band T-shirts I have left, which again are in a box somewhere are my Kate Bush ones from 2014. 
Gosh, that's fairly recent for Kate Bush, it isn't is, it? Yeah. The only other live performance she's ever done than the 79, I believe. Good Lord. So. Now, we talked about knitwear. Mm. Would you like to go to shoes or trousers? You probably have a lot of shoes. Or footwear in general. I probably have more shoes than I think I have. But I, uh, we could probably rattle off shoes fairly quickly in my, uh, my wardrobe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> rattle away. Uh, right. Okay. Sorry. So, um, uh, as I've already sort of mentioned, I, I said about having one thing instead of five or ten. Um, but it should always be that one thing that just does the job at hand. Um, so mm. shoes in particular, I do find I buy much more for a certain practicality or eventuality rather than whether or not I actually love them, if that makes sense. But then I will always choose the one that I really <laughs> love. So I have a pair of Danners uh, for walking. Um, it's only since the whole lockdown thing that I actually got into walking properly. Um, I'm in Sheffield, so we have the uh, peaks right on our doorstep um, and I've never taken advantage of that up until fairly recently so uh, bought a pair of Dana boots to make sure that my feet weren't getting wet uh, I've got a lovely pair of shoes made by a bloke called Kenneth who's just up the road from me um, he took over a workshop that's been there for about 40 years making shoes and has continued making the same patterns is it called patterns with shoes I believe Styles, styles. Patterns, well, he, uh, he still makes the same shoes and has introduced a couple of his own, but, you know, custom fit, really nice leather, simple box toe sort of shoes. Um, and they are my go-to sort of day, slightly dressed shoe. Um, what else have I got? got a pair of running shoes, which I rarely use. Uh, been, I went for a run on Sunday and it didn't go well, so... We'll see when they next come out. <laughs> um, uh, and then uh, I've got a pair of vintage Versace slip-ons, which uh, I think my dad might have bought in a midlife crisis and then handed down to me. Um, so, but they, well, they that is the basis of your footwear collection. Then you are certainly living the slow footwear life yeah. at least and, uh, and that's it and i've kind of i've just recently found a new another sheffield shoemaker that makes trainers but they are completely resolable which really excites me okay it's like you remember what they're called uh, they're called goral 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 yeah um apparently the workshop's been there for 80 years or so but yeah making trainers in sheffield that are completely resolable uh so you know, I've got my eye on a pair of those for my next uh, trainers if I need any. That is something that is possible if you just want to do it, because the Crown uh, Northampton sneakers are also resolable. Excellent. And really comfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have to send them back to the factory to get the new yeah. sole, but you can sort of, they can do it, which makes them uh, also a lot, uh, a lot better purchase. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the, uh, one of the things with fast fashion is it's, it is just the, the planned demise of the object as quick as possible, so you have to go out and buy another one. And for a long time, I'd n I wouldn't think twice about buying a new pair of trainers every year because the old ones had worn out. Um, 
but I actually think I should have been looking differently and thinking, well, how can I buy a pair of trainers and make them last longer instead of just expecting them to be worn out within a year of wearing them to work? Mm. And uh, I mean, that was the good old days when we had one pair of sneakers a year or trainers a year. Mm. Nowadays, of course, you have to buy lots and lots and yeah. boxes full of them at home and so forth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, if you happen to need a pair of boots, you do have another local maker, uh, Stony Middleton, just outside Sheffield, William Lennon. Right. I know Stony Middleton. I don't know that shoemaker. Wonderful little factory there. Um, I did a factory visit on the blog uh, was it three years ago. Um, great people, really solid stuff, and they've been making pretty much the same stuff for 120 years in the same little factory. We love to hear it. Great. Sorry, I'm just writing that down. Um. <laughs> yep. Great. Um, so, uh, how about... Um, Bainclad, as we say in Norway. Trousers. Trousers. Uh, so, trousers. I, I've i actually bought... Obviously, I bought the jeans recently, which haven't arrived yet. Um, I also bought another pair of trousers last year because I realised I only had three pairs of trousers and they were all wearing out far too quickly. So I decided to add a couple of pairs in to sort of help those last a bit longer, hopefully. Um... So what have we got? We've got uh, a couple of pairs from Carrier Company down in Norfolk. Got their uh, their just garden work trouser. I'm actually wearing the navy ones now, um, but I also have them in olive, which I tend to wear tend to wear whenever I go out into the hills because it makes me feel really outdoorsy, mm, like an action man. Absolutely ready ready for anything. Okay, um, and then on the dressier side we have a. Um, so I mentioned the Margaret Howell knitwear earlier I love Margaret Howell as a designer um, for some reason her clothes fit me great all the time They, I think they're just very much of my style so I find it really easy to sort of buy there but I bought a pair of cord trousers which are probably one of the thickest cords I've ever seen um, and they they feel great to wear really special um, yeah Heavy corduroy does have that effect. It, it is does. there is something about it. it, it it's it's very <laughs> having having owned cheap corduroy in the past. It is such a difference. Um, so yeah, and then another pair of trousers from Margaret Howell. It's like a, a pair of wool navy herringbone trousers. Um, then I have another wool pair of trousers from Lane Forty Five. If you know those. Yep. Yeah. He's um, coming up on the podcast. Excellent. Excellent. Lovely. Uh, what else have we got? That's about it. That definitely, definitely sounds like you're a trouser guy. Yeah, I think. <laughs> I, I mean, I've I used to have a lot more pairs of trousers, but I also used to be a thirty-two waist. Um, and I am unfortunately not. Weren't we all? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I am unfortunately not a 32 waist anymore, and nor do I ever really see a realistic world in which I get back to that. Um, early 20s as a 32 waist was a, a wonderful time, but there we go. So I had to get rid of a few pairs, um, move them on, uh, and then replace them with something that fit. 
Mm. Now, thinking about the sort of brands you like and the items you like, there is a certain sort of style there. Would you describe your style as organic coffee shop owner <laughs> guy? I don't know. I really struggle to pin down a style. It's kind of some people do it really well. Some people pull off Americana or Japanese workwear or British tailoring um, really, really well. And I don't know if I fit into any sort of category. I do take influence from all those things and more. But do I need to define a style? Can I just wear things I like or... No, I hate uh, yeah. trying to define a style. It, it, I just call sort of what I do sort of a hybrid menswear, yeah. where I just pick and choose whatever I like. Which is absolutely the best way to do it. Um, I think I've started making sort of like YouTube videos recently about slow fashion, and there's only two videos live at the minute, and it's I struggle. I feel like I'm struggling to get across what I actually feel slow fashion is. And one of the some of the feedback I've had from people is that they think slow fashion is an aesthetic. They think it is a way you look. Um, like I've had comments like, oh, I really enjoyed the videos, mate, but I'm, like the slow fashion isn't really my thing. And it's uh, just because that that my style isn't their thing. And it's like, I think trying to get across that yeah. slow fashion isn't an aesthetic is quite important as well. I think you're very right there because I think it has been appropriated by a certain aesthetic. Yeah. Um you have sort of sustainable, ethical, slow, uh, probably woke, um, all these sort of things mingled together and you get brands like, um, oh, there's a brand in Brighton, I forget their name now, but they are almost unbearably woke and right on and colourful and slow fashion. And then you sort of think about them and but, but really I think that it sort of brings us back to the whole is slow fashion actually a viable label to put on it? Yeah. I don't think it is. No, I, I absolutely would agree. Um, I think I think what I struggle with is the, the absoluteness of the term. It's like slow fashion is very yes or no. It's like you, no one is. Nobody is, the, is slow. You may have people who are the slowest, but nobody is perfectly... I mean, sl- slow doesn't have an absolute doesn't <laughs> so it's kind of like it should be slower fashion i think like and sustainable fashion again is not a thing unless you reach the sort of ultimate stalled fashion where you're not moving at all <laughs> which would be a very good name for the people who just do not buy anything new at all yeah might be onto something mm. there i wonder if we can co-opt that into some marketing <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you about vintage stuff, mm-hmm. vintage secondhand. Where do you stand there? Is it is it without guilt? No, absolutely not. Um, it's it's very much a great way to buy, um, and it's a lot more sustainable and better for the planet than buying something new. But it, it is it's a tough one because it's like. I don't I don't know where I stand on it. There are it is it is it is tough. Mm. Um well I mean for one thing second hand stuff. You used the example earlier where oh I can buy expensive stuff if I don't like it don't use it I can all sell it on. So by buying second hand you might be enabling 
one of those guys. Yeah. You know, yeah. the guys and who I... buy stuff because they can just sell it on. And it's, I but think, of course, if you're all... selling stuff on just to replace it with something else that's new, then it's like that is not addressing the issue. Um, but like, I think moving things into a more circular economy can help prevent new things happening or new things, unnecessary new things being made. Um, but the, the mm. second-hand market isn't something I delved into for a long time um, until fairly recently, actually. It's dangerous, very dangerous. Mm. And it's... Mm. Uh, yeah. It's a bit a bit like uh, buying a second-hand car and thinking that you're really sustainable. But the thing yeah. is, you've really just enabled the guy who was selling the car to buy a new one. <laughs> So, by proxy, is, you bought a new car. That, that is a great analogy. Um, I think, you know, but then there's an argument that a car is really, like, as you said, it's there's a huge environmental impact to manufacture a new car, but then running an old car is going to be less environmental than running a new car. But where does the where does the payoff happen? Where Where's the tipping point of the economical benefits of new versus... The older thing, which is getting, which is worse. I, I don't know what point I'm trying to make here. Dep- depends. Depends how well you maintain your old one. Hmm. Uh, and at some point, of course, I mean, you have sort of zeroed the uh, environmental accounting on it. Hmm. I mean, my old car now is 51 years old this year. <laughs> People say, "Oh, it must be really polluting," and I'm saying, "No, I've done lots of upgrades to it. I've taken care of it, and really." I could have bought five new cars in that time. Yeah. Well, I couldn't because I wasn't buying cars 51 <laughs> years ago. But um, the principle applies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, absolutely. And I think, I think the analogy here is that actually making do with what you already have is a really good way to go about it. You can't, like, buying something secondhand doesn't remove you of the guilt of that item. Like, it's not, like to jump into the ethics at a moment, if it was produced in completely unethical conditions, that does not assuage you of the guilt of those conditions just because somebody else bought it in the first place. Hmm. I think if the option was to throw something away or sell it to someone, you are doing better if you sell it to someone or give it to someone who will continue using it. But so much of the clothes we donate these days just goes to well best case fiber reclamation yeah. worst case landfill or just incineration yeah um which is again it's that sort of passing it on to giving it to the charity shop is just it's kind of people's way of not dealing with the issue it's like passing the responsibility on to mm. someone else um and as you say the the charity shops don't they don't want everything they want the things that they can actually sell um, and mm. with with fast fashion being as cheap as it is now, what's the point in putting a top that was five pounds in a charity shop and discounting it even further when someone could just go out and buy the new one? Mm. You you put your finger on something important there because when you give something to charity shops, you're basically giving away all the trash you didn't want. And they want all the good stuff they can sell. So mm. there's a disparity there in what's yeah. being given and what's wanted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I don't know if whether maybe the 
charities need to market better to help people understand what they need. Um, that they aren't just a dumping ground and they aren't just a bin because people are basically just putting it in the bin with extra steps. Hmm. I have to confess that I have a problem when it comes to vintage and it was something that recently struck me because I'm, I'm a very pro-vintage and just like with uh, cars, if we took care of all the cars we have already, we wouldn't need that many new ones, maybe not even any. Uh, the same with vintage clothing, because there's so much around in warehouses mm-hmm. um, all over the place, mountains of it. Mm-hmm. My problem is that I very rarely see anything I'd like. Yeah, <laughs> I, absolutely. Um, I, it's... I struggle with that as well, and it's like you see people who do the vintage aesthetic very, very, very well, and they can pull off a pair of dead stock 40s French trousers. But I actually, I did buy a pair of vintage dead stock sort of navy blue trousers, and they had quite a few pockets on, Um, but I bought them because they looked really comfortable, and this was kind of the start of lockdown, and I thought, I need some comfortable clothes here. And actually, they're just not me at all. And it, it's really difficult. They look good in the in the shop, which is full of vintage gear. Yeah, I, I find the vintage shops a bit off-putting a lot of the time because it's so clear that there are also fashions within the vintage world. So whenever I've been in one in recent times now, it's all sort of synthetic 90s track suits, <laughs> which weren't even nice when they were new. No. No. Uh, no I, and sort of the typical jeans and yeah. Well, yeah, I I really struggle with that. It, like the, I, I I sort of refer to it as high street vintage, where you you see vintage shops popping up and like the they have like excellent value clothes, but they just have rails and rails full of stuff that you have to hunt through, and it's. There's so much opportunity in there to find something that is entirely you and entirely like unique that no one else has. And somehow, everybody seems to look the same still. Because, as you say, there's vintage fashions. It's hard to find the sort of vintage tracksuit of your dreams when there's sort of 300 of them <laughs> on, the, on the rail. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, and it's. I think when I hear the word vintage, for some reason, I immediately, my, immediately turn to the like heritage workwear side of vintage. Hmm. I, I sort of go for the the more military, army, navy type stuff. Stuff that was made really well mm. and in such huge numbers that. Uh, there's always lots of it around. I yeah. mean, even to the Vietnam era, OG 107 fatigue stuff. Lots and lots of it. Mm. So doesn't need to be remade. No. No, but people will remake it to look old <laughs> instead of just buying the dead stuff. Where are you on accessories and watches? And Not for me. I... I don't know whether I just think they're completely superfluous or I just never had had the energy for them or whether I was afraid that it was another black hole to go down. But um, I bought a watch off a friend and wore it once. Um, 
not for me. Don't wear any jewellery. Can't stand this sort of... I don't don't know. I'm not going to say that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a... I mean, there is a huge thing in the sort of menswear, Instagram world and so forth with uh, accessorising and... I mean, big watches are definitely a huge part of it. Uh, big lots of rings, uh, Native American rings, uh, huge wallets with uh, chains and whatnot on. Uh, you're not feeling it at all. Is that still a thing? Wallets and chains. Oh, very much so. If you're, if that's your okay, sort of well, style jam. That's what. Uh, that's what <laughs> I had when I was wearing my Dark Throne T-shirt. <laughs> Ah, well, there you go. There we go. <laughs> Trendsetter. Um, I just, I don't know. I think like with accessories, uh, I like very minimal things. I don't like to think of myself as a minimalist. Um, I don't know whether people who see my life from the outside might think I am, but I I do like slightly more minimal things. Uh, I have a, I only have one wallet, which is the, where am I? I know I know this is a podcast and people can't see, but I'll show you on the camera. Just the little uh double sided card wallet from Campbell Cole. Oh, and I've had that, that is f- minimalist. I've had that for five, six years and I've never felt like I needed anything else, especially with Apple Pay and all this now. It's like I don't why do you need a big wallet? Hmm. I have to admit, I can't get with the the watch collectors and all the no. things myself. And, and Native but, American jewellery certainly didn't do it for me. Yeah, I think that's a strange one. But the uh, the watch collectors, I think collections are different. I don't know why people collect things, but it's like, are they are they collecting them because they're cool? Are they collecting them because they're going to wear them? Um, I mean, do you have any collections? Oh, I collect all sorts of stuff. Um, my wife will come around later and tell you all about all my hoarding. <laughs> <laughs> so, the only thing I collect that I think of is mugs, um, little handmade ceramics, uh, something I got into a while ago. And just, I don't know if it's because they have a fairly accessible price point for a collection. I think it's a sort of another another hipster thing. Yeah, I've heard about it on American podcasts. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just it just goes back to this. Uh, we've discussed a couple of times about buying things from people who you've know who you know have made that thing, and ceramics are fundamentally made and sold by one and the same, um, and they they're a very unique and individual thing. People copy all the time. I see some hilariously like uninspired copies of like big Instagram ceramicists popping up all the time and it's like but but actually a mug is a very easy thing to make really unique and interesting so I'm just I keep looking off to the side so I'm looking at a mug that arrived today from uh which is nice that that is a nice mug yeah so that was a Zoe Burden down in London I think mugs are pretty harmless I have to admit, I have a, a lot of music, though I haven't bought any in years and years. I have carted it around many moves. I have a lot of books. Uh, just looking here, I have a lot of footwear. And behind me, I have a lot of jackets. 
yeah. But I don't sort of know expensive watches aren't, aren't my thing. No, me, me neither. No. But that's not to say but... that if you're into expensive watches, then enjoy it. Like, let that be your thing. But it's not for me... I think what put me off was uh, when they started becoming sort of really valuable investment pieces. So it wasn't the the love of a nice watch any longer. It was this watch has increased in value 100% in the past year. Wow. Yeah. That didn't do it for me. No. I'd love to have an old Omega or Rolex or Raketa or whatever. but uh, As would I, but I'm not losing any sleep over it. How uh, hard are you on menswear rules? Do you seek out um, I the five ways to wear your trousers? Oh, God. <laughs> Don't get me started on this. <laughs> this is one of my least favorite social media trends or things. I mean, I'm sure long before Instagram, people were publishing things in magazines about how to style certain garments. But, like, five, five ways to wear a white T-shirt in a 30-second reel and... The answer to that is with different clothes. It's it's it apps. I find it really really interesting that people re- replicate and churn out this content on Instagram of how to style this garment or how to style that garment, and it's I I, I don't know. I think style inspiration is really important, and it's like I find that by looking at people on Instagram, absolutely. But it it's it's not about like. Ooh, are they rolling their T-shirt slightly? Is it tucked in? What what are they wearing underneath it? And it's like, I just find that world very strange. I think it panders to the insecurities of people because I, I have to snigger a bit when I see something like sort of how to wear a pair of trousers. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't worked that one out yet, yeah, you've got a problem. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think it might have actually been a comment on one of your Instagram posts I saw recently, which really stuck with me, which was somebody you might have mentioned about layering. And somebody mm-hmm. commented, I don't understand what layering is. Is it not just getting dressed? Yeah. And th- I have a problem with this layering <laughs> thing. And I've, I've, I've definitely posted on Instagram before about layers and an appreciation of how fabrics stack on other fabrics. But it just putting a jacket on it isn't, I don't know, it's not intentional layering. That is just getting dressed. And I also, I I don't know, I, I tend to get dressed according to the weather. And if it's really cold outside, I'll put on a big thick jumper. Mm-hmm. I won't put on seven different shirts <laughs> in the name of layering. No. Because that really doesn't work. No. no I, uh, yeah, I think the practicality of what you wear is much more important than how many layers you've got on. Now, I think we're sort of coming to the end here. Now, you being a, a coffee man, mm. where's the similarity between sort of proper good clothing and proper good coffee? And what is proper good coffee? Uh, I think... So have you ever seen Look Around You? No. Oh, it doesn't matter then. There was a great reference that came into my head Head then, but I'll, okay. uh, I'll leave that one out. Um, if anybody has... <laughs> now, you're, now you've mentioned it, if any, you could have to say it. If anybody has seen Look Around You, it's just the uh, the profiteroles bit, um, but I'll leave that there. Um, <laughs> sorry, I've completely made a tangent now. <laughs> Uh, a, should I? Okay, yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you. So basically, it's a 
competi- a music competition and there's a entrant from a profiterole chef and he's being interviewed afterwards and he says, so what is the secret to a good profiterole? He says, well, I'd have to say the secret to a good profiterole is a fresh cream and good ingredients. And that is the end of the interview. And when you asked me then about coffee and clothes, <laughs> that was my answer in my head. <laughs> it's about good ingredients and well-made, whether that's textiles or coffee fruit. It's, I don't know, well-grown, well-made things with a transparent supply chain that benefits everybody in it and ultimately is a rewarding experience for the end consumer. If we could achieve that in fashion and coffee for everybody and not as a select little subset, if that was just the norm, that would be my absolute dream world for those industries. And what's the connection between slow fashion and a slow old Saab? (laughs) Uh, The Saab's cool. I think that is where it ends with the Saab. I love my Saab, uh, but I 100% own a Saab because I think it's cool. Um, I try and look after it as best I can. I am not a mechanic. Thankfully, I have a mechanic or two in the family, so it gets well looked after. Um, And I'm a firm believer in if somebody's better at something than you, then you should get them to do it. Um, But yeah, the, uh, the Saab is a purely aesthetic heritage piece of joy for me. I think it's not actually that different to having some, say, a favourite good old piece of knitwear. No. Which might have been made years and years ago. No. It would be if I, I mean, my S.E.H. Kelly sweater was not made years and years ago. It was made probably six, five or six years ago now. But, like, I will do everything I can to keep that up for alive, alive for as long as possible. And I will do the same with the Saab. It's like, it's not a car for me where if, if all of a sudden it fails on something, then I I don't just think, oh, well, I'll just go and get a new car. It's time for a new car. It's an excuse for a new car. Because I love that Saab so much, It's if, if there's an issue with it, I want to repair it. And the cost of those repairs will probably end up outweighing any value that the car still has. But I don't think it's about that. It's not about just doing the most or the cheapest option should I say. It is about, like, the value of something and keeping that going. Hmm. I think a six, seven-year-old piece of knitwear, which is used a lot, is probably doing about as well as a uh, a Saab that I imagine must be coming up for now about 35, 36 years. 35 this year. D-Reg, so um, I believe it was manufactured 86 and then registered 87. Um, But it's still... uh, It actually... (laughs) It actually got stolen um, a few years ago, three years ago now, uh, and then it suddenly reappeared. Um, then there's an estate agent next door to my coffee shop, and he he came into the shop one morning and was like, "Have you heard about your car?" I was like, "No, what do you mean?" He's like, "I saw it this morning down the road," <laughs> and I was like, "Okay." And he'd called the police. It had also been picked up on ANPR cameras. Um, And then the police had boxed this guy in who was driving around my city with my car. Um, He got out and decided his best course of action would be to start a fight with the police. Um, So I believe believe tasers were let loose and uh, 
faces hit curbs and things. Uh, I did see some footage of this, but I, I, it's all going off secondhand information of how it actually went down. But then I got the car back, so in an absolute state, and spent a year with my uncle repairing it getting it back on the road right. and now it runs even better well, than it did before the burning question our listeners will be uh, considering right now is was the thief a slow fashion enthusiast <laughs> was he accessorizing uh i have no idea what he was wearing the footage was very blurry i'll find it and send you it somebody found me on facebook and because I'd, I'd posted on Instagram about the car being stolen and it had been shared around a few people. And someone found me on Facebook and was like, I think this is your car. And it was a video they'd filmed out of a window <laughs> of the guy getting out the car and getting in a scrap. So interesting. Strange world we live in when people can find you that easily. And uh. Indeed. I'd, I'd suggest he was probably wearing a synthetic 90s tracksuit. I mean, as long as it was vintage. Yeah, and sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sam, I think we've uh, we've reached the end of this chat. Okay, uh, really nice chatting with you, and uh, I hope everything I said came across relatively clearly. Um, I do waffle a bit. That's good. We like waffling. <laughs> so, thanks a lot, Sam, for being a guest on Gomology. I hope your slow fashion endeavours bear fruit and uh, I will put a link to your YouTube channel in the episode comments so people can find you and follow your further ventures. But uh, bye-bye for now. Thanks ever so much for having me. Cheers. And that concludes this week's episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Thanks to Sam for being my guest. You can find him on Instagram as Sam Binstead. And uh, there's also a link to his YouTube channel there. I'll put that in the episode notes as well to make it easy. If you'd like to get in touch with me, I'm Nick Johannesson. My email address is gomology at welldressdad.com. You can uh, find my blog at welldressdad.com. Uh, you can even find me on Instagram as WellDressedDad. There's also um, a new Gomology YouTube channel out. You'll find that via the blog. And um, I'd be really pleased if you left a review or rating on Apple Podcasts. So, until next week, enjoy life and bye-bye.